I've always been fascinated by what we call watershed moments, or turning points in life sparked by a single incident. The smaller the incident, the more it fascinates me. We've all had moments like this in our life, some we know of, some we don't, but they changed the course of history forever. Such was the case for Ronald Wayne Van Zant when he stepped into the batter's box one summer day back in 1964. That summer, Ronald was 16 and playing for an American Legion team, but he dreamed of making it to the big league someday. The pitcher leaned in, took his sign, stretched, and hurled the ball towards home plate. Ronnie was there waiting for it and hit it good. A line drive which smashed right into opposing team member Bob Burns' head. Hitting someone in the head with a baseball isn't funny, but Ronnie was 16, so in the moment, he thought it was. He told Burns' friend Gary Rosington as much. Somehow, this led to the three of them back at Burns' house, talking not about baseball, but about music. Burns set up his drum kit under his parents' carport. Rosington grabbed a guitar and Ronnie a microphone, and the three started jamming, playing some popular songs by the Rolling Stones in the hot Jacksonville afternoon. They liked how it sounded and decided to form a band, which they creatively named My Backyard. Soon, they recruited Alan Collins and Larry Jungstrom to join them, and My Backyard was complete. They played together for the rest of the summer and kept playing when school started up in the fall. They all went to Robert E. Lee High School in Jacksonville and were constantly in trouble over their long hair, which was against school policy. Eventually, some of them would drop out and focus on their music. They needed a place to practice and found and rented an old wooden shack with a tin roof in Green Cove Springs. It was a good practice space, but between the Florida heat and the additional heat coming off their equipment, it got hot in there, and they definitely could not afford air conditioning. Because of the heat, this cabin earned the nickname Hell House, but it was where the band would do some of their best work, including writing their most famous songs. By this point, they were playing at bars and parties, and people really liked their hard-rocking sound. The band's early influences were the Rolling Stones, Cream, and Led Zeppelin, who were themselves influenced by the great blues artists of the Mississippi Delta, bringing the music full circle and back to the American South. Their lyrics, though, drew from their own experiences, which came out more country than rock and roll. This band, along with fellow Jacksonville-based band the Allman Brothers, would begin to inspire a subgenre we now call Southern Rock. The band also went through several name changes during this period, calling themselves the Noble Five, the Wildcats, Sons of Satan, and finally, the One Percent. It was around this time that Larry Jungstrom left the band and was replaced by Leon Wilkeson, the first of many personnel changes the band would weather. In 1970 and 71, they made some recordings in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, but nothing really took off. In 1972, producer Al Cooper saw them play at the Atlanta club Finocchio's and signed them to his Sounds of the South label under MCA. Around that time, the band added Ed King, formerly of Strawberry Alarm Clock, as the third guitarist, and Billy Powell on piano, 
creating a seven-man band. Somewhere in there, the band made one more name change and chose a mocking reference to an old PE teacher at Robert E. Lee High School who had always given them grief about their long hair. His name was Leonard Skinner, and the band would forever after be known as Leonard Skinnerd. In 1973, Leonard Skinnerd released a debut self-titled album. On it would be their second best-known song and the quintessential rock ballad, Freebird, which would top out at number 19 on the charts. The album would go gold. That year, they got a huge bump when they were chosen to open for The Who on their Quadraphonic tour. The following year, their follow-up album, Second Helping, would go to number 12 on the charts, and the hit single Sweet Home Alabama would go all the way to number 8. Leonard Skinner were on their way. In 1975, the band released the album Nothing Fancy. While they were touring to promote the album, Ed King left the band and was replaced by the young and incredibly talented Steve Gaines. Steve had been recommended by one of the band's backup singers, his sister Cassie Gaines. In 1976, Leonard Skinner released the album Gimme Back My Bullets and a live album, One More From The Road. This live album also broke into the top 10 on the charts. The hard rocking boys from Jacksonville were at the top of their game. On October 17, 1977, the band released its sixth album, Street Survivors, which would eventually go platinum and reach number five on the charts. The album's cover showed the band engulfed in flames, and one of the lines from the song, That Smell, would, in retrospect, seem even more prophetic. The smell of death surrounds you. It happened just three days after Street Survivors was released, on October 20th, 1977. The band boarded their 1947 turboprop plane they'd nicknamed Freebird after a show in Greenville, South Carolina. They were on their way to Baton Rouge when, somewhere over southwestern Mississippi, the plane ran out of gas. The pilots were forced to crash land in a field. Steve Gaines, his sister, backup singer Cassie Gaines, and lead singer, songwriter, and frontman Ronnie Van Zant were killed instantly, as were their road manager and both pilots. The rest of the people on board were injured, but remarkably would survive. The surviving band members would move on to other projects and eventually get the band back together, first for a tribute show and later to tour and even release more albums. Leonard Skinner still tours today, but it would never be the same without its charismatic leader. It's hard to tell the story of Ronnie Van Zant and Leonard Skinner without reminiscing back to their very first self-titled album and the song which helped propel them to stardom. Rolling Stone listed Freebird as the 193rd greatest song of all time. While the song was written and recorded long before his death, Ronnie Van Zant often dedicated it to legendary guitarist and fellow Southern rocker Dwayne Allman. Allman had died in a motorcycle accident in Macon, Georgia, a week and a half shy of seven years before the crash that took Ronnie's life. 
Now the song seems equally fitting for Ronnie himself. And, at least to me, it's always been one of the great anthems of the constant traveler and road warriors like myself. If I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? For I must be traveling on now, because there's too many places I've got to see. But if I stayed here with you, girl, things just couldn't be the same, because I'm as free as a bird now, and this bird you cannot change. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every town. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is great to be back with you today. Over the last few weeks, I've been making my way down the east coast of Florida, the Sunshine State, and soaking up some of those winter rays. I've gone all the way from Amelia Island in the north, down to and through the Florida Keys in the south. Avoiding the big cities for the most part, I've really been enjoying Florida's small towns, beach communities, and state and national parks. I've also been fascinated by the history I've learned here, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of those stories with you today. Our musical guest today is the super talented Florida-based singer-songwriter Lainey Jones, and I just know you're going to love her music as much as I do. You can listen to and download all of the music you'll hear during this show on iTunes and Spotify. To learn more about Lainey, be sure you visit her website, laney-jones.com, L-A-N-E-Y-Jones.com. You can also find her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Miss Laney Jones. To find out more about me and my slow journey around the United States, visit my website, www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles2GoTweet, and on Instagram, Miles2GoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. At the point of European contact, the area we now call Florida was home to groups like the Appalachian, Timucua, Tocobaga, and Calusa. Juan Ponce de Leon arrived near today's St. Augustine in 1513, establishing Spanish control and giving the area the name Land of Flowers, Florida. After the French and Indian War of 1763, the area came under British control and the provinces of East and West Florida were established. Both remained loyal to Britain during the American Revolution, but in 1783, Florida was returned to the Spanish. In 1821, Spain ceded both provinces to the United States, and General Andrew Jackson became the first governor of American Florida. On March 3, 1845, Florida became the 27th state, but 16 years later would secede and join the Confederacy. In 1900, Florida's population was only about 500,000, but all of that was about to change. As travel became easier, Florida became a center for both tourism and people relocating from further north. Today, Florida's population is over 21 million, making it our third most populous state. 
Let's get right to today's stories then. Grab a comfortable seat and perhaps a glass of orange juice. Sit back and let me take you to the music clubs, swamps, and beaches of East Florida. There's a dream that waits like a tiger Florida has the third longest barrier reef in the world, behind the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and the Barrier Reef off the coast of Belize. When Juan Ponce de Leon was exploring the coast of Florida in 1513, he needed to find the end of this reef so he could get his ships through to the Gulf of Mexico. When they did find it, over 150 miles from the mainland, he wanted to mark it on their map. Due to the abundance of sea turtles in the area, an important source of food for them because they could be kept alive on board their boats for several weeks, he called this small group of islands at the end of the reef Tortugas, the Spanish word for turtle. When British ships came through many years later, they added a notation that there was no fresh water there, and the islands became known as the Dry Tortugas. When the United States purchased Florida from Spain in 1821, they thought the Dry Tortugas would make an excellent place to build a fort to suppress piracy in the Gulf, but the land was deemed unsuitable. A 65-foot-tall lighthouse was built on Garden Key instead to guide boats to the safe channel. In 1829, the Navy revisited the site and the idea of a fort, and planning for what would become Fort Jefferson was begun. Building a fort in such a remote location was no small task, as everything needed to be shipped in. Construction finally began in 1846, using both slave and free labor. It was a massive undertaking, as the fort was to cover 47 acres of land and support a population of 1,500 people. The completed fort would require 16 million bricks. At the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, only 62 men were stationed at Fort Jefferson under the command of Lewis Golden Arnold. After Florida's secession from the Union, a Confederate boat approached the fort and a messenger was sent to ask Arnold to surrender the fort. Arnold refused, saying that all of his cannons were currently aimed at the Confederate boat and if they didn't leave in 10 minutes, he would give the order to fire. The messenger left, the boat left, and did not return. The bluff worked. There were, at that time, no cannons, not one at Fort Jefferson. That fact was remedied as quickly as possible, but the fort never left Union hands during the war. It was an essential part of the plan to block southern shipping lanes and prevent trade. In September of 1861, 
the first prisoners arrived in the Dry Tortugas. These prisoners were often convicted of treason and had chosen the option of hard labor at Fort Jefferson over the death penalty. By war's end, the fort was home to 583 soldiers and 882 prisoners. Life was not easy there, especially during the hot Florida summers. Food was scarce, water was always an issue, and the isolation must have been intense. On July 24, 1865, the fort's most famous resident arrived in Dr. Samuel Mudd. Dr. Mudd, I'm sure you know, was convicted as a conspirator in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater in my hometown of Washington, D.C. Mudd had helped treat John Wilkes Booth's broken leg in the midst of his escape. Dr. Mudd was sentenced to life in prison, narrowly escaping the death penalty. When Mudd arrived at Fort Jefferson, he was assigned to work in the prison hospital. After a failed escape attempt, he was reassigned to the carpentry shop. In the fall of 1867, Fort Jefferson experienced an outbreak of yellow fever. The disease killed almost 40 people, including the fort's doctor and four nurses. Dr. Mudd stepped in to fill the role and treat the sick. The work that he did during this episode caused several soldiers to write personal letters to President Johnson, calling for a pardon for Dr. Mudd. A pardon was granted on February 8, 1869, and Dr. Mudd returned home to Maryland, no doubt grateful to leave the dry tortugas behind him. In 1874, all work to try and complete construction of Fort Jefferson was halted and only a skeleton crew was left to man the fort. Between the weather and the damage inflicted every year by hurricanes, it fell into a state of disrepair. As the 19th century was winding down, Fort Jefferson was being used mainly as a coal depot and quarantine station. In January of 1898, the USS Maine was deployed to Cuba to protect American interests there during the Cuban War for Independence from Spain. It stopped in the Dry Tortugas to take on coal before continuing on to Havana. On February 15, 1898, the Maine exploded, killing 258 of the crew and sank in Havana Harbor. The sinking of the Maine would propel the United States into the fight now remembered as the Spanish-American War. During this short war, the U.S. naval fleet staged at Fort Jefferson. In 1902, the U.S. Navy took control of the fort and built coal rigs and water distilling plants there. Both were destroyed by hurricanes in 1906, and the fort was abandoned. In 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt declared the islands a national bird sanctuary as part of an attempt to protect the birds of South Florida, a story you'll hear more about later in this episode. In 1935, Teddy's cousin Franklin Roosevelt expanded protection by designating the island's Fort Jefferson National Monument, and on October 26, 1992, it was redesignated as Dry Tortugas National Park. Today, the park is considered one of the most remote and hard-to-get-to national parks in the contiguous United States, and therefore one of the least visited. Only about 25,000 visitors a year make the 70-mile journey from Key West by ferry or seaplane, 
but those who do are rewarded with fascinating history and some of the most beautiful beaches in the country. My visit to the Dry Tortugas was one of the biggest highlights of my trip through Florida. As I wandered around the crumbling ruins of old Fort Jefferson, I thought the same thing I always do in a place that has seen so many different chapters in history. If only these walls could talk. of snowy egret feathers, harvested when the bird was displaying its breeding season plumage, was worth twice as much as an ounce of gold. Yes, you heard that correctly. An ounce of feathers was once worth twice as much as an ounce of gold. This fact pitted market hunters intent on capitalizing on these premium prices against environmentalists determined to protect these birds from extinction in an episode we remember as the plumage wars. Feathers have been used to decorate clothing and hats for thousands of years, but never more so than during the Gilded Age. The Industrial Revolution allowed for mass production of goods. It also produced printing presses, which began to churn out women's fashion magazines by the thousands. Hats adorned with exotic feathers became a craze, and the market shifted to meet the new demand. By the turn of the century in 1900, over 83,000 Americans were employed in the hat-making industry. When mail-order catalogs, like Sears and Roebuck, got in on the action, the demand for feathers skyrocketed. It has been estimated that during this time, as many as 5 million birds were being killed each year in the United States alone. When these birds were shot, their feathers were plucked on the spot and their carcasses were left to rot. As bird populations dwindled, prices climbed even higher, and market hunters set their sights on South Florida. At that time, South Florida, and especially the Everglades, was pretty remote and undisturbed. Those hunters that were willing to make the journey were rewarded with still healthy populations of birds, especially the valuable herons and egrets. New York Zoological Society director William Hornaday once estimated that the hat-making industry in London alone had consumed the feathers of 130,000 egrets in a single nine-month period during this time. In 1896, Boston socialite and avid birdwatcher Harriet Lawrence Hemingway read an article on the plume trade and was appalled at what she learned. She enlisted the help of her cousin, Mina Hall, to try and do something about it. They began hosting tea parties for Boston's social elite and encouraging the women to boycott wearing feathers. Through their efforts, they enlisted 900 women to join their movement and founded the first Audubon Society of Massachusetts. The society began to lobby against the decorative use of feathers 
and in 1900, the Lacey Act was passed, which prohibited the transport of protected birds across state lines. By 1900, Florida had established its own Audubon Society, which helped get a law passed outlawing killing birds for their plumage. The state hired Guy Bradley as a game warden to enforce their laws, and he was good at what he did. His efforts led to a major drop in the supply of feathers coming out of South Florida, but this led to a subsequent rise in demand and value of these feathers. On July 8, 1905, Guy Bradley came across a hunting party known as the Smith Gang, who were out illegally hunting cormorants. He moved to stop them and was shot and killed. Guy Bradley has often been referred to as America's first martyr to environmentalism. Meanwhile, with the assassination of President McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt had become President of the United States. Among his many priorities was protecting the environment for future generations. His attention was drawn a little further north, to Pelican Island, which contained the last breeding colony of brown pelicans in East Florida, by Frank Chapman, curator of ornithology at the American Museum of Natural History. The colony was being threatened by plume hunters. In a meeting with Chapman and chairman of the American Ornithologist Union William Dutcher in 1903, Roosevelt asked if there was any law preventing him from declaring Pelican Island a federal bird reservation. When they told him there was no such law, he said, quote, Very well then, I so declare it. Thus, Pelican Island, off the east coast of Florida, became America's first national wildlife refuge. The National Wildlife Refuge System today has 562 units and protects 150 million acres in the United States. Between the efforts of the growing Audubon Society, a sympathetic president, and nationwide public outcry over the murder of Guy Bradley, protection of these birds started to take hold. Finally, in 1913, Congress passed the Weeks-McLean Law, better known as the Migratory Bird Act, which would forever outlaw the market hunting of birds for their feathers. A subsequent piece of legislation, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918, went all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was upheld. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote for the majority opinion that protecting birds was in the national interest. Without legislation, he wrote, he could foresee a day when no birds would survive for any power, state or federal, to regulate. Traveling around Florida, you can't help but see the plentiful and diverse bird population that lives here. These birds are magnificent to watch as they wade, fly, and dive right in front of you. It is thankfully hard to imagine a time when these majestic birds were on the brink of extinction on the altar of fashion, and when their beautiful feathers were more valuable than gold. Birds of a feather gonna flock together and I guess it ain't gonna get much better than my gambling man from Tennessee with his mama's ass and his daddy's ways in the devil
When Evelyn and Reginald Poitier traveled to Miami in mid-February 1927, they had no idea how long they would end up staying. They came from their home on Tiny Cat Island in the Bahamas to sell tomatoes, as they often did. I'm sure it was quite a surprise when Evelyn, who was seven months pregnant at the time, went into labor on February 20th, 1927. Two months before he was expected, young Sidney Poitier made his first appearance. And that is how he was born with both American and Bahamian citizenship. His parents stayed in Miami for three months, caring for their premature baby until he was healthy enough to travel home. Sidney Poitier spent the next 10 years of his life on Tiny Cat Island, population about 1,000. He grew up with no electricity, no indoor plumbing, no refrigeration, and no automobiles. His favorite pastime was hunting birds with a slingshot his parents gave him. Also notably absent on Cat Island were white people, of which there may have been two when Sidney was growing up. Because of this, he grew up with the belief that he was as good as anyone else and had no idea that segregation existed in the world. He never encountered segregation until he was sent to live with his older brother in Miami when he was 15. At 16, he moved to New York, where he found work as a dishwasher. At that time, the United States was deeply involved in World War II, and Sidney wanted to go and fight. He lied about his age and enlisted in the Army. Much to his dismay, he was not sent overseas, but rather to work in a mental hospital in New York State. Deciding he had made a mistake, he tried faking his own insanity to get a discharge. When the doctors prescribed shock treatment for him, he admitted he had been faking it, and also admitted his real age, and was promptly discharged. Returning to New York City, Sidney decided he wanted to give acting a try. He auditioned at the American Negro Theater in Harlem, but his thick Bahamian accent earned him a prompt rejection. For the next six months, Poitier spent several hours a day listening to the news and mimicking the accents of the anchors. When he returned to the theater accent-free, he was accepted into their training program. In 1950, Poitier got his big break in the role as Dr. Luther Brooks in the film No Way Out. The following year, he played a reverend in the movie adaptation of Cry the Beloved Country. He would also star in Blackboard Jungle in 1955 and The Defiant Ones in 1958. The roles he was getting were not common roles for black actors at the time, and the plots of these films often dealt with overcoming prejudice. Because of these roles, Poitier is often considered Hollywood's first black leading man. His role in The Defiant Ones earned him an Academy Award nomination, the first time a black man had been nominated. In 1959, Poitier starred in the Broadway play A Raisin in the Sun, and he would also star in the film version in 1961. He would win the Best Actor Oscar for his role in the 1963 film Lilies of the Field, and become the first black man to win the award. It should be noted that Hattie McDaniel had been the first black person to win a competitive Oscar for her role in Gone with the Wind way back in 1939. By 1967, Sidney Poitier was a Hollywood superstar 
and would have the highest commercial draw that year with three films, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, To Sir With Love, and In the Heat of the Night. In 1974, he was honored for his work by being knighted in the British Empire. He followed that up with the Golden Globe's Cecil B. DeMille Award in 1982 and Kennedy Center Honors in 1995. In 2009, Poitier was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Interestingly, he also served as the Bahamas Ambassador to Japan from 1997 to 2007. Sidney Poitier's work was groundbreaking and ahead of its time. He refused roles he found stereotypical or damaging to his race and paved the way for everyone who followed him. As with anything, somebody had to be first. It seems only fitting in this instance that that somebody would be Sidney Poitier, who showed up in this world two months early and with a hard fight ahead of him. Under your feet, black river road carries you up the street, leading somewhere you once know. Never complaining about the weight of your sorry soul. And miles away, the pavement glistens as night turns to day. The road always listens to heartache and pain. So Black River Road, won't you carry me home? Charles Greenlee was just 16 when he arrived in Lake County, Florida on July 15, 1949. Despite his young age, he was married, and his wife was pregnant with their first child. He had been working as a dishwasher in Gainesville, but his friend, Ernest Thomas, told him he could make more money picking fruit in Groveland. So he hitchhiked into town to look for work. The night he arrived, his friend, Ernest, asked him to hold on to a gun for him, which he did. Someone spotted him with the weapon, though, and he was arrested. It must have been both terrifying and confusing to Greenlee when officers came into his cell to question him about the rape of 17-year-old Norma Paget, a crime which supposedly took place while Greenlee had been in custody. The officers weren't interested in the facts, though. They wanted a confession. They beat 16-year-old Charles Greenlee until they got what they were after. He confessed to a crime he could not possibly have committed. Greenlee's friend, Ernest Thomas, who had asked Greenlee to hold his gun, heard the police were looking for him as well in connection to the assault. He fled the area, and Sheriff Willis McCall sent out a posse to find him. A thousand men set off after Thomas, and apparently found him sleeping under a tree. Thomas would not get his day in court, though, as the posse served as judge, jury, and executioner and riddled his body with 400 bullets. Nobody was ever charged in his execution. Friends Walter Irvin and Sam Shepard, both 22 in 1949 and both World War II veterans, were having a beer together in Eatonville the night of the alleged assault, 40 miles from Groveland. They were arrested the next day. The arresting officers drove them to a clearing in the woods and beat them severely 
When they did not confess, they were brought to the scene of the alleged assault, so the police could match their shoes to footprints they had found there. They did not match. Police then brought them to the Tavares jail, cuffed them to overhead pipes, and continued to torture them. Shepard eventually gave in and confessed. Irvin never did. Catching wind of what was going on in Lake County, the NAACP sent attorney Franklin Williams to the young men's defense. When he arrived, he documented their injuries, from open wounds to lash marks and broken teeth. The Groveland Four, as these men would come to be known, were charged in the rape of 17-year-old Norma Paget. She had told authorities that she had been driving down a back road with her husband, Willie, when they had stalled. She said these four men had stopped to help and then turned on them, first beating up Willie and then taking turns raping her. This is truly a horrible story, but it likely never happened. The doctor who examined Miss Paget found no signs of rape at all. Even if something did happen, it was highly unlikely that these four men had anything to do with it. No matter, though, the police had confessions from two of the four, and a third had fled town and been killed. Greenlee, Irvin, and Shepard would stand trial. The medical evidence was not presented at the trial, and all three were convicted by the all-white jury. Irvin and Shepard were sentenced to death, while Greenlee, because he was just 16, was given life in prison. Given the fact that he could be 18 by the time a retrial took place and therefore sentenced to death, Greenlee did not appeal his case. Irvin and Shepard did, and the appeal went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. When it reached the High Court, Irvin and Shepard's case was presented by future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Irvin and Shepard's convictions were overturned by a unanimous decision, and the case was returned for a retrial in a lower court. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson stated, quote, This case presents one of the best examples of one of the worst menaces to American justice, end quote. Sheriff Willis McCall was sent to transport Shepard and Irvin from the state prison back to Lake County to await a new trial. On the ride back, Sheriff McCall claimed he got a flat tire. When he got out to inspect the tire, he said Shepard asked to relieve himself. When the men got out of the car, cuffed together, the sheriff claimed they attacked him. He drew his pistol and shot them both. Shepard died instantly. Irvin did not, but knew it would be best for him to pretend he had been. When Deputy James Yates saw he was still breathing, he shot Irvin again. Again, he somehow survived. He later told the FBI that both shots were totally unprovoked. Sheriff McCall did face an inquiry for the shootings, but it took a jury less than 30 minutes to determine the shootings justifiable stating McCall had been acting in self-defense. Thurgood Marshall would seek and receive a change of venue for Irvin's trial. Despite the FBI testifying that evidence had been manufactured in the case, Irvin was once again convicted, again by an all-white jury, and again sentenced to death. His sentence was commuted to life in prison by Governor Leroy Collins, 
who determined there was no way he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Walter Irvin served almost 20 years of his life sentence and was paroled in 1968. He died of a heart attack the following year. Charles Greenlee was released in 1962. He moved to Tennessee and raised a family and died in 2012 at the age of 78. The same year Greenlee died, investigative journalist Gilbert King published the book Devil in Groveland, which introduced a great deal of previously undisclosed information on the case of the Groveland Four and reopened the conversation. On April 18, 2017, the Florida House of Representatives offered a formal apology to the families of the Groveland Four. And finally, at the beginning of this year, on January 11th, 2019, the Groveland Four were pardoned on the basis of the medical evidence which had never been admitted in their trials. It was determined that the men had never had a chance of a fair trial in Lake County in 1949. Stories like this one have come to my attention everywhere I have traveled thus far. While it is refreshing to see a state own up to an injustice like this now and again, it doesn't actually help the four young men involved, two of whom were married, two of whom were war veterans. Two of these men wouldn't live to see their 30th birthday, shot down in cold blood. A good part of the evidence I've told you about today was available to the police and the courts at the time, but was ignored. And that is both sad and infuriating. To the best of our understanding, the only thing Ernest Thomas, Charles Greenlee, Walter Irvin, and Sam Shepard did wrong back in 1949 was being black and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Some say I'm a lonesome soul, but I don't believe everything I'm told. There's still a lot of world I've yet to see. Well, it's fatal city's eye. I could wander all my life. I'm not alone. I've got a home. And That's it for the show this week. Thanks for coming along for the ride. If you enjoyed it, take a minute to rate and review the podcast. And be sure you tell your friends about it. To find out more about me, to see photos from the places I've been, or just to get in touch, head over to my website, www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles to Go Tweet, and on Instagram at Miles to Go Before I Sleep, all using the number two for me and you. I know your toes were tapping along to the music this week. Many thanks for that. Go to Florida based singer songwriter Lainey Jones for being our musical guest this week. To find out more about Lainey, 
please visit her website, laney-jones.com, L-A-N-E-Y-Jones.com. You can find her on social media, at Miss Laney Jones, and you can listen to and download all of her music on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks, as always, for background music and sound effects. Go to Kevin McLeod over at IncomTechMusic.com and to the great folks at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. As for me, I've made my turn. You can't get any further south in the continental United States than Dry Tortugas National Park, so I guess I'm headed north from here. Next time, I'll be bringing you stories from my trip up the west coast of the Sunshine State, so be sure you tune in in just a couple of weeks for that. Until then, I hope you are getting out and doing some traveling of your own. I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.